stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And the Gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 16. Verses 13 to 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Julie. Why don't we turn to page 126 of the, of the New Testament section of, of our Bible as we're, as we're finding that just a, just a couple of, a couple of quick, quick announcements. Just to say, first of all, I went into Boots yesterday. And, and I found they had Christmas cards. Again, she looks out at her window at the east end of the cathedral. So, yeah, God's got a sense of humor for her, hasn't she? So let us pray. The Holy Spirit, as you're with us now, just help us to understand as we kind of take a helicopter ride through the book of Acts this morning that we would be able to understand a bit more of your 
precious word and how it fits together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If we're on page 126, I want us to read one verse together. It's Acts chapter 1 and and verse 8. So you'll find it on page 126. And we just say together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we're thinking this morning, as we've been thinking all through September and October, about how we can understand, or one way that we can understand, the big story, if you like, of of the Bible. And so we're kind of about to land this series, which we'll land in a couple of weeks' time. But at the moment, if you like, we're in a bit more familiar territory, perhaps, for some of us. We're in the book of Acts. And if you like, the story of the birth and the growth of the church. And what I want to show you this morning, and through the handout that I've given you as well, is to kind of show you how this one verse in Acts, how it sets the scene for everything that then follows in the book of Acts. You see, if you will find this, if you read certainly a lot of the narrative books of the Bible, certainly if you read like the Gospels, you will find that there is one key verse. And what happens with that key verse is it then is explored in greater detail as you, as you go through the book. Or sometimes what you find is that like with John's Gospel, the key verse is virtually right at the end. And you find that everything that has gone before leads you back to this verse at the end. Well, in the book of Acts, what happens is the key verse is virtually right at the beginning, in verse 8. And the reason I'm going to do this this morning with you is because I want you to be able to be empowered to go and to take what you learned this morning and say, you know what, I could do this for other books in the Bible. You could maybe start with one of the smaller narrative books in the Bible, but you'd also find it in the other types of literature as well. And this is the key verse. This is what most scholars will will tell us is the key verse in the book of Acts. Now, to understand what's going to happen, we're going to go on a bit of a helicopter ride in terms of the Old Testament scriptures, because we have to understand what this verse meant the likes of the disciples like Peter and James and John and Andrew. You know, when Jesus said this verse to them, what were they thinking at that particular time? You know, what was, what was going on in their head when, when Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So let's just think for a minute about what they would have thought the Holy Spirit was and is. Now, in the Old Testament, this is what happened with the, if you like, the Holy Spirit. You might have seen this if you've been following any of the daily readings through this series. But what we would have found is this. So we all get on the same page. The Holy Spirit, if you like, in the Old Testament, he came upon, if you like, particular people. And that was for a particular purpose at a particular period of time. That's that's the encounters that we read about, about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We might want to say that really, well, he, were, he came on special people for special occasions, for a special enablement. You know, and those special people, if we want to categorize them in that 
kind of format were either prophets, they were, they were priests, or they were kings or leaders. So if you know anything about the story of Exodus, you'll know that the power of the Spirit fell on Moses. If you know anything about the period of the, the judges and the kings in the Old Testament, you'll know that the power of the Spirit fell on many of the judges. Othniel, Jephthah, Samson, Gideon. If we know anything about the kings, then when Samuel anoints King David, king of all Israel, the Spirit falls powerfully on King David, just like he had on King Saul before. If you know anything about the prophets and the exile, you'll know that the Spirit came upon certain prophets. Isaiah, that famous prophecy in Isaiah 61, where Isaiah says, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me. Or that prophecy in Joel, where once more Joel writes that there will come a time, at the end of time, when the Holy Spirit will then fall upon all people. So what we see is a change. And it occurs in the prophets when Joel says that the Holy Spirit will then fall on all people. All ages, irrespective of, of socio-economic status. And then, so that's if you like what, we, what they thought about the Holy Spirit. But then... There's something else that we need to kind of understand about what's going on there about the Holy Spirit. Was that basically the Holy Spirit was God. So in other words, if the Holy Spirit fell, it could only be because of God. And there was another prophecy in the book of Ezekiel. When Ezekiel was in captivity in Babylon when he was in exile. And he, and he said there will come a time that when the Holy Spirit comes upon all people, it will coincide with the Messianic era. And so they've got this idea that the Holy Spirit will fall. And then what's happened in their own lives is this. John the Baptist in the Gospels talked about how someone would come. Someone would come is that he... He might baptize with water, but this person who would come would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he talked about this person coming. And then, when he baptizes Jesus in the River Jordan, we read how the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in bodily form. Therefore, showing so much about how he was going to be the Messiah that he was God, that he only God could baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, they're hearing these verses. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So all of a sudden, all those centuries of history and of their knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures, that they would have known all those Scriptures... And they've seen in Jesus' life, what did Peter declare, as we heard in the gospel for the very first time? You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And so now, in Acts 1 and verse 8, they're about to see all this being fulfilled. Of course, they see it first in Acts chapter 2, don't they? On the day we all know, 
or most of us will know about the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit quite literally came upon them in Acts chapter 2. And page 128 there, you can see in Acts 2 verse 41, the result of what happened. So they're, they're in the upper room, all the disciples in fear. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God kind of breaks through the doors and equips them and changes miraculously these people who'd been fearful and scared. And Peter in particular goes straight outside the door and, if you like, goes into the city centre and goes and witnesses. And it's the start of the church as 3,000 people become followers of Jesus. And what we see in the book of Acts is how the story of the church begins and how it grows. And what we see is how the rest of that verse, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, is fulfilled. And it happens in two parts, if you like. First of all, if you like, the gospel goes to the Jewish world. And that happens up to verse 25, if you like, of Acts chapter 12. And then after that, the gospel quite literally goes to the Greek or Roman world and to the ends of the earth. And so in the first 12 chapters, it starts in the Jewish world. Primarily through the Apostle Peter. And then... In the second half, it goes out further to the ends of the earth through the Apostle Paul. And what you find is that on, as it goes out, as the gospel gets spread, we find there's a summary verse that keeps bringing us back each time to show how it's all bringing us back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. If you remember... Luke is a doctor. He is very logical in his writing. He is very analytical in his writing. And he may tell you these great stories, but all the time he wants to draw you back. He's quite deliberate in, in his writing. So let me show you how this works out as the gospel sort of like kind of goes out to Jerusalem and to the, and to the Jewish world. So the first of these summary statements, they occur three times in both parts of the book of Acts. The first of them you can see on page 132 in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. And we read there. The word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So where are they? They're still in Jerusalem. But what we see is the church is starting to get even bigger. All started from Acts 2. All started, if you like, from verse 8 of Acts 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. But then it starts to move out. So if you look in on page 137, if you just turn over a couple of pages and look at verse 31 of Acts chapter 9, we see it once more. And now where are we? Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. So where's the church now? It's not just in Jerusalem. It started to move Judea, Galilee and Samaria. 
And I love this second half of the verse that we'll return to right at the end. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church increased in numbers. But it didn't just stop there because then the church started to go to other nations. Just kind of bordering on the, if you like, on the, on the border. And we read about the third time in Acts chapter 12 and verse, verse 24. You can see it on page 140. And it says, but the word of God continued to advance and gain adherence. And if you were to follow and read the whole of those 12 chapters, you would see what's happening. And you'd see how those summary verses all, all fit together. So you could go away from here and you could, you could read all of those first 12 chapters of the book of Acts and you could see, yeah, I can see. You don't just need to see the summary verse, you could see. But it doesn't stop there because then the gospel, if you like, goes to the Greek or Roman world. And that happens, if you like, from Acts chapter 12 and verse 25, right the way to the end of the book. And, on each, and once more, on three separate occasions, you have the same thing. You have the same summary statement bringing us back each time to Acts 1 and verse 8, how Acts 1 and verse 8 is being fulfilled. The first of them we find on page 145, if we turn over a few pages to Acts chapter 16 and verse 5. So what's happened between Acts 12, 25 and Acts chapter 16, verse 5, is that, if you like, the gospel has gone into Cyprus into Antioch and into modern-day Turkey. It's now no longer just, if you like, within the nation Israel. It's now moved into other countries. And you see once more, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Then if we, then if we move on, we find the next one on page 149. And now once more, we see that the church has gone out further through what we know as Paul's second and his third missionary journey. And the summary statement this time kind of comes halfway through what is known as Paul's third missionary journey. The reason it comes halfway through is because that's where he kind of gets to. That's the furthest he's got from Jerusalem. And then he starts to turn back to Jerusalem. So the, it isn't so much that the kind of the church is expanding anymore because he's going back to some of those churches he's visited and just, if you like, feeding them and catching up with them. So we read in verse 20 of Acts 19, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and, and prevailed. And then the final one is the very last verse on page 161 of the book of Acts. Now what we find is this. Now the church has reached Rome. And Paul's, if you like, under house arrest. You can see that quite clearly. But he's still witnessing. He's still bringing us back to Acts 1, verse 8, where it says, Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and without hindrance. You see, the story of the book of Acts, if you like, is the story of the birth of the church and its expansion as lives are transformed by Jesus Christ. But it kind of doesn't end there because the story of the book of Acts is an unfinished story. 
It's a story that's still meant to be lived out through the centuries and now today in people's lives who've been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Lives like yours, lives like mine. And it's an unfinished story. We're filled with the same Holy Spirit. That's what we're now empowered to do. To go out and to be his witnesses. And that's how we see how this one verse is fulfilled all the way through the book of Acts. And that's when they're thinking, when the disciples are thinking way back when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And when we've been thinking about, about this particular series, we've been asking two questions. What did that passage mean to those first hearers? And what does it mean for my life today? And so when we think about, well, what did Jerusalem represent for the disciples? You know, I thought about this this week. You know, what, what, would, what would Jerusalem have represented for them? I've started to think, well, it was their home. And then I realized it wasn't their home. Because they were all good northern boys from Galilee. They all spoke with northern accents like me. Jerusalem wasn't their home. But Jerusalem was the place God had appointed them to be. You know, culturally there would have been lots of people like it, like them. Because Jerusalem, if you like, was a multi-kind of cultural city. It would have been full of Jews from all over Israel. But it was... It was hostile. You know, after all, Jesus had been killed there 50 days before. It wasn't easy being a, a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem. That's why they were in the upper room, waiting on the day of Pentecost. That's why they were fearful. That's why they were scared. That's why they needed the power of the Holy Spirit to come into their lives and to be witnesses so they could overcome their fears. And so then I started to think, well, what? What then does Jerusalem represent for you and me today? And I start to think, is it not the places that God has appointed us to be? It might be in our homes. It most definitely is in our workplaces. And perhaps with, with our friends, people who might well be, be similar to us, You know, because Jersey's full of white people. And yet we almost feel if we mention that we're a Christian, that we're on the defensive. And that's why we today need to pray for God's Holy Spirit to come into each of our lives to overcome those fears that we, that we have to be a witness. And then what did being a witness in all Judea and Samaria represent for the disciples? You know, what did, what did they think when Jesus was saying Judea and, and, and Samaria? Well, if you know the Christmas story, you'll know famously that we hear the words Bethlehem in Judea. And Bethlehem, if you don't know your 
Israeli geography is six miles from Jerusalem south. So it's the region south of Jerusalem. It would have been very similar to, to Jerusalem. It would have been hostile still. What did Samaria represent? Well, if you know your Old Testament scriptures, you'll know that Samaria came about when the ten northern tribes of Israel went off into exile by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, if you like, were the first superpower. And they were particularly brutal, and they had a particular punishment that they were going to do to the Jewish women, in particular, because there wasn't too many Jewish men left at the time. And they were going to force the Jewish women to marry Assyrian men. And it was a particularly difficult punishment for the Jews, because this, like we know today, they have a strong ethnic heritage. So no faithful Jew would ever marry an Assyrian man. But some did. And as a result, the children that were born, they were the Samaritans. They were hated, marginalized, oppressed by both the Assyrians and the Jews. And that was still happening in Jesus' day. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. That's the context of the Good Samaritan. Hated by the Jews. Think about the story of when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the woman at the well in John 4. Hey, we're not supposed to be having this conversation. We're not supposed to mix. And so I started to think, well, what does Judea or Samaria represent for you and me as a disciple of Jesus? I thought that's a bit more difficult. And then I kind of thought, well, listen, we live on an island. Geographically, we're kind of, our borders are defined by, by water all around us. And surely it means that whether people are similar to us, whether people might be downright hostile, wherever we go in this island, in whatever circumstances, your workplace might take you into places that might be very difficult for you to be a Christian. It means that. It means that you just go. And you just kind of think, please God, can I just put my head under the table? And that's why we need to pray for God's Holy Spirit to come and empower us. And then finally, what did being a witness to the ends of the earth mean for the disciples? Well, for them at that time, they either thought the ends of the earth was Rome, because that was where the center of the Roman Empire was, or they thought it was Spain, because that was the western edge of Europe, or quite literally, they thought the ends of the earth. It doesn't really matter where they thought, because really, in reality, they were going to be experiencing cultures that were different, and probably once more hostile. And so I think that represents, for us, it means we go and be a witness. Some of us go on business trips all around the world into different cultures, and it means still being that witness. Most of us are privileged to at least go on at least one holiday a year that normally involves going to a different country, often a different continent. It means still going to be a witness. And so as I close, Acts 1 and verse 8 was pivotal to how the church began. And it's just as pivotal to the church today. So why don't we stand together and pray. In a moment, Hazel will continue to, to lead us in prayer.
But as we pray, why don't we ask for the Holy Spirit to, to freshly infill each one of us. You know, to be His witnesses. You know, you might just want to reach out your hands to Him. Because as I mentioned earlier, there's that, there's that verse in Acts 9 and verse 31 where it was living in the fear of the Lord. You know, so often I think we are scared more of what other people think of us than what Jesus thinks. And in the comfort, it said, of the Holy Spirit. The word comfort there is that that word we've heard so much this year, the word paraclesis, of how he comes alongside. And so as we, we reach out now, Lord, to you. So, Lord, we pray the oldest prayer in the church, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And if you reach out to him, I guarantee you he'll reach out to you. Would you come and equip me and each one of us, Lord, to be your witnesses? Lord, that you would overcome fear and give us a fluidity with our words. Lord, that when we might feel tongue-tied or not knowing what to say, Lord, that you promise that you will give us the words to say. And that's what it means to live in your power. Lord, when we think about Peter and whatever the day of Pentecost looked like, but he just went outside and he just spoke to thousands of people. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a boldness like you gave to Peter, but so much more. To just go maybe into the... To give us opportunities this week. Maybe in the rooms of our own homes. Maybe in the corridors. Maybe over a meal this week. Lord, would we go from here, we pray with boldness changed. So come, Lord, and meet us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.